0: Really excited this morning to share First Corinthians chapter ten with our little family here. Um, it's just an honor always to open the Word of God, but especially this passage for me um, because it's really—I don't know—I just I think it's so crucial to us um, as followers of Jesus to understand what Paul's talking about to the Church of Corinth here. Um, so if you'll turn with me to First Corinthians chapter ten, um, I'm going to pray for us one more time, and then we'll we'll look at the text together. Um, So Father thank you for your word and um, thank you that your holy spirit is here with us teaching us to know the things about Jesus. And I just pray Father that through my words this morning that your spirit would open up our hearts together to embrace everything that you are, everything that Jesus is and everything that he's done on our behalf. Um, and that we would move forward into the world um, as people who are full of love and generosity. So Jesus, we just say we love you and we're grateful for your life and death and resurrection. It's in your holy and precious name that we pray this morning. Amen. So we've been going through 1 Corinthians, and last week Michael left us off in chapter 9 um, with an idea that everybody's running in a race, and we all want to win. He said only one person wins, but the idea is that As followers of Jesus, we want to win the race of faith. He says, Do you not know that all run in a race, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box like I'm beating the air, but I discipline my body, and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others... I myself should be disqualified. And that's where we kind of left things last week, this idea of disqualification. And I spent all week saying, well, what is Paul really talking about? Because if Paul's worried about being disqualified, it's probably not salvation because he's kind of solid on that one. Um, but what, what is he talking about? So I, th- I think that's the framework that he starts coming in to chapter 10 with. And we're going to see that he tells these stories of Israel and how they failed, essentially, um, and how many, many of them were disqualified. So we're going to look at the first several verses and see what Israel has to teach us about being disqualified in the race of faith. But as we talk about it, I want you to realize and keep in your head, I'm going to probably say it 14 times this morning, this is not about salvation. This is not about salvation. This is about something else. So let's look at chapter 10 together. Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware, i.e. pay attention. This is important. Our fathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses, and in the cloud, and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So Paul's trying to say that Israel, all of them, were running the same race. They all participated in the same things, they all were part of the same ceremonies, did the same activities mentions a couple things specifically. He says that they were all guided by the cloud of God's presence. Remember it was a cloud by day, it was fire by night, and the cloud ended up settling in the middle of the people of Israel and resting with them in the tabernacle for because God was saying I'm with you always. So God's presence was with them all. They all passed through the Red Sea by God's favor. It says they were all baptized into Moses. And we're not talking about getting wet and being like baptized that way, because when they walked through the Red Sea, they weren't wet. The Egyptians were the ones who were baptized in that sense. Um, But baptism that Paul's talking about here really just means identified. So because they followed Moses, they were identified with Moses. What's really interesting is that they didn't really trust Moses fully, right? Like the whole time they were going across the Red Sea and walking in the desert, they were like, would have been better back in Egypt, what, you're going to kill us out here, Moses. We, we don't like it. But Paul says here that they were identified with Moses because they had like this much obedience to him. Um, and God rewarded that and um, kind of wrapped all of the people up of Israel as Moses's people. Um, the book of Hebrews tells us that they crossed the Red Sea by faith and we just said they didn't have much faith. And so it was the faith of Moses that allowed them to experience God's reward, not dying in the Red Sea and um, the other things. So they're all baptized into Moses or identified as Moses' people. And then he says they all ate the same, the same food, which came from God's provision. He's talking specifically about the manna that came, but the physical manna that they ate really was picturing a spiritual reality that God was providing for them constantly. They all drank the same drink by God's sacrifice and his blessing. It talks here about the rock that followed them, and um, you probably remember the story where God told Moses to take a staff and hit a rock, and water would come out of it. Um, It's in Exodus chapter 17, and God says, he says, I will stand before you on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people will drink. And so um, we see later Paul says here, and we see later in the New Testament that um, that was a picture of Jesus and how in striking Jesus there would be living water that came out that would refresh our souls. And so um, Paul's talking about that, but he also says the rock followed them. And so he's probably not talking about that rock that just like got up and walked like behind the people of Israel. Right? Um, God was often referred to as Israel as our rock, our redeemer. And so we see that God... Followed them. Specifically, Christ, the second person of the Godhead, was with them perpetually as they moved throughout the wilderness and was refreshing them and helping them follow Moses. So they were all in the same race, guided by the cloud, passed through the Red Sea, baptized into Moses, ate the same food, drank the same drink. But verse 5 Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. And they were overthrown or killed in the wilderness. Nevertheless, despite participating in the same activities, the same ceremonies, God was not pleased with most of them. Your translation may say many, but it really means most. If we read the story, we know all but two of them who left Egypt walked into Canaan. Joseph and Caleb—not Joseph, um, Joshua and Caleb. God, the wrath of God fell upon them because they were not pleasing to Him. So the point I think Paul's trying to get at here is when the Israelites walked out of the land of Egypt, who could have looked around and said, him, him, and him are going to make it. Everybody else is going to fall off. You, you, you couldn't have said that. As, as they followed the cloud, nobody was able to distinguish who would finish and win and who would be disqualified and not make it into the fullness of God's promise in the promised land. As they passed through the Red Sea, as they ate the manna, as they drank the water, what were the differentiators? Certainly wasn't what they were doing because they all did the same thing, but it's who they were in their hearts, right? They all shamed, shared the same ceremonies, the same experiences, the same spiritual activities, but most of them were evil. And they desired evil, and they did evil, even as they participated in the righteous ceremonies that earned favor from Moses, Caleb, and Joshua because of who they were because of the evil in their hearts the righteous ceremonies did not count in their favor in fact participation in them counted against these evil children right and they were disqualified but paul tells us in verse 6 that these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did so their desire was evil and we'll look at specifically the evil things that they desired there in a second. But um, just want to reiterate that we're not talking about salvation, right? Israel is our example for Jews and for Gentiles. And we'd say we're the Gentiles. But Paul's using the children of Israel to show us what it looks like to be disqualified in the race of faith. We don't want to miss out on the promises of God. So if Israel's our example, there's some application to us, right? Just like Israel, followers of Jesus share in many of the same privileges. And they parallel to the things that Paul pointed out for Israel. We are all guided by the presence of the Holy Spirit, both into our salvation. The Holy Spirit leads us into salvation and he guides us through our salvation until the end. We're all identified with Jesus. We're all baptized into Jesus when we obey him in faith. And we receive the reward of trusting him, which I think Peter says it's the salvation of our souls is the reward. We all partake and participate in the body and the blood of Jesus at the Lord's table. Whether physically, I mean, everyone in the church does this. We, we receive the body of Jesus and become part of it. And we take the cup and receive the blood and forgiveness of Jesus. Whether you do it physically every week or not, we'll get to that in, in just a few minutes. And we see that we all drink the living water that Jesus gives. And we benefit from the, refreshing, the refreshment that it brings our souls as he faithfully follows and protects us. But somehow Paul's saying, even in all of this, believers can still harbor sin in their hearts. And not allow God to work that out through sanctification. And if that's the case, we can miss out on God's provision for us. So the point Paul's making is that after preaching to other people, after doing the right things, don't be disqualified. (laughs) Don't be disqualified. So what kind of evil are we prone to in our hearts? I think it's the same evil that Israel was prone to, and so I want to look at those for a few minutes. Um, For starters, there's the worship of idols. Verse 7, it says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. What Paul's referring to here is the Israelites building the golden calf while Moses was up on the mountain. This found in Exodus chapter 32. And I want to just read you part of that account. In Exodus 32, it says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man that brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And he said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. He called the calf the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink, and they rose up to play. So what kind of evil are we prone to? Well, we're prone to look at something that's not God and call it by God's name. Give it God's place and worship it like it is God. God says that, Paul says that God was not pleased with Israel, and he will not be pleased with us if we harbor this evil in our hearts. So that's the first one Paul points out. Worship of idols equals evil. I think that we're all pretty good on that one. Pretty clear that that's the case. Next on the list, verse 8. Immorality, namely sexual immorality, evil. Evil says, we must not indulge in sexual morality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. So here Paul's pointing to maybe a less familiar story from Numbers 25. And let me just read you part of that as well. Um, Numbers 25 says, while the Israelites were camped at Achaia Grove, some of the men defiled themselves by having sexual, sexual relations with local Moabite women. These women invited them to attend sacrifices to their gods. So the Israelites feasted with them and worshipped the gods of Moab. In this way, Israel joined in the worship of Baal-peor, causing the Lord's anger to blaze against his people. The Lord issued the following command to Moses, Seize all the ringleaders and execute them before the Lord in broad daylight, so his fierce anger will turn away from the people of Israel. So Moses ordered Israel's judges, Each of you must put to death the men under your authority who have joined in the worshipping of Baal-peor. Then verse 6, it says this, it says, Just then... Just then, so they're having this discussion about how they're going to kill everybody who's participating in the sexual immorality. Just then, one of the Israelite men brought a Midianite woman into his tent right before the eyes of Moses and all the people, as everyone was weeping at the entrance of the tabernacle. When Phineas son of Eleazar and grandson of Aaron the priest saw this, he jumped up and left the assembly. He took a spear and rushed after the man into his tent. Phineas thrust the spear all the way through the man's body and into the woman's stomach. So the plague against the Israelites were stopped, but not before 24,000 people had died. We're not going to spend a lot of time on sexual morality because we've talked about it a lot recently, but let's just suffice it to say that Paul's using this example to hit morality of every kind. Fornication outside of marriage, as an affair to marriage, homosexuality, We also wrap up pornography and every other kind of sexual sin imaginable and unimaginable in this category. Sexual immorality is displeasing to God and it's evil that we as humans are incredibly prone to. So just a really quick note here. um, 1 Corinthians says that 23,000 people died. Numbers says that 24,000 people died. Those numbers aren't irreconcilable. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that in one day 23,000 people died and the account in Numbers seems to say that 24,000 people over the whole ordeal died. So maybe they had to round up another 1,000 people and execute them because they were in the Midianite camp, or maybe they got sick and died. So some people point to this specifically and say, well, the Bible can't be true because those numbers aren't the same. Right? Come on, dude. There's, there's lots of ways that these could work together. So worshiping idols, evil. Sexual immorality, evil. Third, testing God, Evil. Paul says, we must not put Christ to the test in verse 9, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. You may be familiar with this story from Numbers 21. It says, the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey, and they began to speak against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness, they complained. There is nothing to eat here and nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, We've sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. And the snake bites really hurt. Cody's version. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord told him, Make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at at the bronze snake and be healed. The essence of this evil of testing God is an open distrust, doubt, and rebellion against what God has promised to provide. It's defiance and disbelief in his power and ability. This account's told again by Asaph in Psalm 78, and he says, They kept on sinning against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They stubbornly tested God in their hearts, demanding the foods they craved. They even spoke against God himself, saying, God can't give us food in the wilderness. Yes, he can strike a rock so water goes out, but he can't give his people bread and meat. When the Lord heard them, he was furious. The fire of his wrath burned against Jacob. Yes, his anger rose against Israel, for they did not believe God or trust him to care for them. The Israelites' expression of doubt in God's ability clearly demonstrated two things. One, their hearts were still in Egypt where there was a table prepared with bread and meat. And that was the core of their evil, their desire for something other than God and his provision. But the second thing it shows us is this. They didn't believe God and they didn't trust God to care for them, and they put God to the test. Henry Ironside explains it this way. He says, Faith believes God and never tempts him, but goes forward in obedience to his word. Testing God is evil. Sexual immorality is evil. Worshipping idols is evil. And then the fourth one grumbling. Verse 10 says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So I want to share this one story with you because I think it helps us understand what grumbling means and it's um, one of my favorite from the Old Testament. It's found in Numbers chapter 16 and the full story is pretty long so I'm just going to try and sum up the first part and then read the last part. But basically here's what goes down. <clears throat> the leaders of the, the sons of Korah um, are Levites. And they get sick of Moses and Aaron being large and in charge, holier than thou, this is their perception, holier than thou and trying to take over the people of Israel. Moses and Aaron were also Levites, and the sons of Korah thought they were just as qualified, just as holy, just as rightfully, just had the same rightful place to lead the tribe of Israel as Moses and Aaron did. So they thought, they started planning a rebellion. They gathered some other families and then went to Moses and Aaron to tell them that they were fed up with it and they were going to take their place. Basically, long story short, Moses tells the rebels that their quarrel is with God himself and not with Moses and Aaron. And God verifies that. He upholds Moses and Aaron's rightful place as the leaders of Israel. And he tells the people of Israel to back away from the tents of Korah and the rebels. And God opens up the ground under them. And the rebels, their wives, their children, and all of their things disappear into the earth. The story says that they went alive to the grave, and the ground swallowed them up. Because they grumbled against God and tried to take over the rightful place. But it's not the end of the story. Pick it up in verse 41 of Numbers chapter 16. It says, but the very next morning... Can you just picture this? The ground just opened up and swallowed hundreds of people. And the next morning, the whole community of Israel began muttering against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You've killed the Lord's people. As the community gathered to protest Moses and Aaron, they turned towards the tabernacle and saw the cloud had covered it. Cue the daunting music bum, bum, bum. <laughs> the glorious presence of the Lord had appeared. Just, just, just get the picture. The day before, people swallowed up. Today, we all come and say, hmm, maybe they're not right to be in charge. This is bad. We want to complain about it some more. And the presence of the Lord descends on the temple and things are about to go down. Well, it says in verse 46, Moses and Aaron came from where they were and they stood in front of the tabernacle. And the Lord said to Moses, get away from the people so I can instantly destroy them. But Moses and Aaron fell on their face Down on the ground. Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put in it fire from the altar and lay incense on it. Then bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them, for the wrath has gone forth from the Lord. The plague has begun. So Aaron did exactly as he said. He took his censer and ran into the midst of the assembly, for behold, the plague had begun among the people. So he put the incense on it and made atonement for the people. He took his stand between the dead and the living so that the plague was checked. But not before 14,700 of them died in the plague, in addition to those who had died involving Korah. So you see that the sin is grave, but what I love so much about this story is that we see Jesus so clearly. I want you to think about what Aaron did. Aaron was outside and he ran into the temple, and inside the temple, he picked up things from the holy place of God and the presence of God, and then he left, just like Jesus did. Jesus was in the presence of God, and he took his holiness that dwelt in the presence of God, and he walked out of the temple into the congregation. And the, in verse uh, 48, says that Aaron, just like Jesus, took his stand between the dead and the living, so that the plague was checked. So yeah, they grumbled, and they complained, and they doubted, and they questioned, and God punished them. But in every one of these stories, God provided salvation as well. So if you're feeling a little, um, I don't know, depressed about the sin of Israel and the sin that we're prone to in our hearts, welcome to the club. That's kind of just the reality of being human, but um, I just want to speak into this moment right now with the howling wolves upstairs that... um, (laughs) Jesus is our salvation and there is hope. And that's where we're headed. But not before we look at a few other things. So um, Paul goes on in verse 11 to make it abundantly clear that these stories, these sins are not independent events, but that they affect us today. Verse 11 says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the age has come. So God is capable of using a single event to accomplish more than one purpose, to accomplish a bunch of things. This is what we call his sovereignty. And it is yet another reason that we should have great confidence to trust in his care for us. Paul says something really interesting at the end of this verse, though. He says, they're written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. It's like, whoa, Paul, you're just talking about like the beginning and how this whole shindig started. And now you're talking about the end. Like what what are, what, are you trying to do here? Well, I want to tell you what Peter thought about it because he had the same train of thought and he connected it all together. So I um, know we're jumping around a lot, but I think this passage is incredibly helpful. Um, and I think you'll see in Second Peter chapter 3 that the trains of thought are incredibly similar. So if you want to turn there, I'm going to read um, about 13 verses from there. Um, So Peter says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they're going to say, where's the promise of Jesus is coming? Ever since the father slept, the past, All the things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. Their argument is nothing's changed, nothing's ending, and you keep claiming that the end's coming and I just don't believe you because everything's the same. Then Peter says this, They deliberately overlook the fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook the fact that with the, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. As some count slowness. But he's patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, Peter says, what sort of people ought you to be? In lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. Peter's point is this. If you understand that the end could come like a thief at any point, you're going to examine your life. He says, what sort of people should you be in relation to holiness and godliness? And this is the same point Paul is trying to make. What he's getting at, he's saying, if you understand what's happened in the past and you're prone to sin and evil and you get that the future is coming and that the end is near, like really near, like could be near right now, it's going to bring incredible urgency to the present. It's going to push us to learn from the past and prepare for the future. So they happened as an example to us. They were written down so that we could learn from them. Upon us whom the end of the age has come. And so what kind of people are we going to be Here's what Paul has to say to that. He says, if the end is soon approaching and the example of the past is clear, what should we know? Well, we need to watch out. Verse 12, he says, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The surest sign of moral failure is an arrogant confidence that says, I'm fine. I'll be okay. We have to each watch out for ourselves and be careful and guard against this arrogance and this, conf- this fake confidence that we're fine, that sin's not going to touch us. We're, we're standing strong, can't fall, everything's okay. If you think you stand this morning, you might not be wrong. You might be standing and standing strong, but don't neglect the possibility that you, yes, even you could fall to temptation, into sin. Just like nobody knew which Israelites would make it out of the promised land, none of us sitting here this morning can know which followers of Jesus will win the race. It's possible to do the right things just like the Israelites did, all of them, and still not be pleasing to God. Jesus gives us a sober warning in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, on that day will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So Jesus is talking here about people who never knew him because he says they're not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But if people can prophesy in the name of Jesus, cast out demons in the name of Jesus and perform miracles in the name of Jesus and not know Jesus at all, I think it's very possible that we can come to church and take the bread and the cup and sing songs and still have evil in our hearts. And that's frankly terrifying. Um, not in a bad way that you can't know if you're saved because we do. We have confidence that what God has said, he's going to deliver. When when we trust him with our whole hearts, he saves us fully forever, but it's terrifying in a very somber way that challenges us every week to take heed. Do I think I'm standing? Can I fall? Where's the sin that I haven't let God deal with yet? Our confidence is in the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promise when we trust him with our whole heart. So be encouraged. <laughs> if you're feeling discouraged at this point, Paul gets that. He kind of like took you down this road to make sure that you are somberly aware of the reality that sin is present and it is As Genesis says, crouching at the door, waiting for you, waiting to devour you. He's about to lift you up with the strongest exhortation, I think, in most of the Bible. Back to our text. It says, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stand takes heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overcome you. Only that that is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you will be able to endure it. Israel did all the good things, the good things, and they faced pretty much the same bad things together. But this morning, we have to understand that I am not alone. You are not alone. Your temptation is not anything new. And you are not the only one facing it. Through the passage, we're sitting under the reality of the failure of Israel. And it may feel like there's very little hope. That's where Paul turns turns the corner with three little words that are the hinge of this verse, the hinge of this passage, and I would even possibly say the hinge of the entire book. Three simple words that have absolutely nothing to do with me. God is faithful. That's it. That, that's the key to all of this. Think about it. How did the Israelites who pleased God do so? Through his faithful provision. He guided them by the cloud. He was protecting them as he parted the sea. He provided manna for them to eat and be nourished. When the rock was struck, it was him that was struck on the rock and he made the water pour forth. He followed them and it was in him they trusted and were saved. God did it all. They just fell on him and trusted him. The thing is, their example alone, the example of their moral failure alone, is not enough to keep me from sin. It's not motivating enough. And really, the reality of the coming judgment alone isn't enough to keep me from sin. It's the faithfulness of God demonstrated again and again and again throughout history and in my own life that allows me not only to resist but conquer sin in my life. That's because the faithfulness of God does a handful of things for us. The faithfulness of God allows me to safely tell the truth about myself and my sin without fear of punishment, wrath, or condemnation. The faithfulness of God promises to love and forgive me because I am found in Jesus. The faithfulness of God has demonstrated that he will always provide for me in every way, despite my weakness and shortcomings. Which we'll see in a minute, because of my weakness and shortcomings. And the faithfulness of God proves that he is worthy of my devotion, affection, and all of my sinless life. It is the unique faithfulness of God that is greater than the common temptations of the world. But his faithfulness is more than just ideological, even though I think that would be enough. It's also incredibly practical. See, Paul says that God is protecting me and he's protecting you. He's guarding us, not allowing anything too strong to overtake us. But the reality is that it's not about your ability to stand, it's not about my ability to withstand temptation. I think that's the folly that so many Christians, especially in my generation, fall into. We read this verse and we see that God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. And we think, golly, if God's only going to give me what I can handle, then he must sure believe in my ability to handle it. I'm just going to stand strong and try and take on whatever God sends my way. I want you to look real closely at what Paul actually says in this verse. He says, God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. And then he gives this Two clauses that clarify what God thinks of our ability. He says that we will be able to endure temptation, but not by standing strong against it, only by taking the way of escape that God Himself provides for us. With every temptation, God is faithful to provide a way of escape, a way to get out of town. And by taking the way of escape, we endure the temptation. It is in escaping, not in facing temptation, that we endure it and avoid sin. So often we think that we must be stronger, more able, in order to endure temptation. But here God, through Paul, tells us the truth about our strength. That it's simply not strong enough. So the only way to endure is to admit that my strength will never be enough to fight and win. And turn hightail, and trust Jesus to take care of it for me. Now, this is not cowardice. It's actually confidence. Confidence in the one providing the escape. When we don't try and stand and fight, but instead turn and run, we are expressing our belief in God, our honest agreement with his evaluation of our spiritual condition, and our trust in his value and worthiness by relying on him to conquer on our behalf. This is why humility is so essential to the Christian life. Because without it, you're never going to be able to tell the truth about yourself. So we've got to flee. That's what Paul says next. He says, so dear brothers and sisters, therefore flee from immorality. Well, he says idolatry here, sorry. Flee from idolatry. Now this doesn't say fight hard against idolatry. He doesn't say try to muster up enough strength to face idolatry. He says, get out of there. Flee from idolatry. He says the same thing in chapter 6, verse 18. He says, flee immorality. To Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, he says, flee these things, O man of God. Talking about money, the love of money. 2 Timothy 2, 22. again, he says, flee youthful lusts and passions. Flee, flee, flee. Seek safety by flight. That's how you must deal with sin. Talk about a race. I wish I could just wrap up here, um, but they gave me all of chapter 10. So um, we're going to fly through the last half of this. um, There's really just one more idea that I wanted to grab onto. It's going to take a couple minutes to get there, but then we're going to camp there. And I think that the concept that Paul lays out here is going to radically change who we are as people and as a church. um, But before we move on, maybe this is what Jesus needed to say to me. Maybe this is what Jesus needed to say to you. And you just need to kind of tune me out for the next however many minutes and process, okay, God, what are these ways of escape that you're putting before me and help me flee so that I can avoid sin and not have the evil in my heart like Israel did and be disqualified because I want to win. Maybe you just need to deal with God and that's totally okay. If you want to sit here and not listen, that's fine. If you want to go to the back and not listen, do your thing. Um, Because you getting right with God in this moment is more important than you hearing what God could say to you later. So to recap, Israel provides an example for us, both in the privilege they have as the people of God and the potential to be disqualified by harboring evil in their hearts. So Paul warns us, watch out. If you think you're fine, pay close attention. You may not actually be. God is faithfully protecting you And he will give you a way of escape from every temptation. But you've got to be ready to take it. So in verse 15, Paul starts to take a turn. Um, He's kind of following the same train of thought, but he's moving his argument along. He says, I speak to wise men, so you judge what I say. He says, I'm trusting that you have some wits about you. That God has redeemed you enough to be able to follow the logical train that I'm about to take. Because it's going to get a little hairy. If you thought it was difficult up to this point, it's not going to get a whole lot clearer, but um, I'm going to try by the power of the Holy Spirit to clarify some things for us this morning. Um, Paul takes a whole verse to say, pay attention, turn your brain on, think about it, reason with me. Um, So what he's about to say must be really important. Um, And we see that wise men and fools will come to different conclusions based on the information that Paul's about to present. So let's join him on this journey of reasoning. Verse 16, he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. So Paul's setting something up here, setting up an understanding that wise believers are to have, and he explains that When you drink the cup every Sunday here and break the bread, it's not just a drink and some bread that you're eating. It's more than that. It it has significance. It means something a whole lot more than just the, the physical matter that's inside of it. It has a spiritual application and implication. Specifically, taking communion means that we are expressing our sharing, our fellowship with Jesus, or at least we're claiming to. He says that sharing the bread demonstrates that we are spiritually one body. And Ironside, again, explains it really in a really helpful way. He says, the table is a rallying center, as it were, where God's people come together to openly confess their adherence to the very foundation principles of Christianity. So the table of Jesus is incredibly important, and we're not supposed to approach it lightly. There are so many reasons that we put the body and the blood before us every week, and um, reminding ourselves that we belong to the global, universal, eternal body of Jesus is just one of those reasons. So Paul says, just like the body and the blood represent something to us, the bread and the cup represent the body and the blood and our participation in them. So when Israel came and ate of the altar, they showed their participation, their fellowship with the children of Israel in the altar of God. If you're wondering, it's specifically talking about the peace offering that everybody was allowed to eat of. And you can read about that in Leviticus chapter 7. So, we got to grasp that. Okay, taking something and participating means that I'm fellowshipping, I'm sharing, and I agree with what's happened here. But where are you headed, Paul? (laughs) Come on, I'm not not tracking. Um, If you ever think Paul has unknowingly lost you, he has not. He's just meandered a bit to get your attention. And he calls it out himself here, right? In verse um, 19, he says, so what do I imply? What do I mean? What's going on? Thank you, Paul. I'm glad like you're, you're feeling me. He says, am I saying that food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? So Paul follows the natural train of thought. Okay, if sharing the bread and the cup means participation with Jesus, and sharing in the altar means participation in the altar, then... Obviously, sharing in food offered to idols means participation with the idols, and we don't want to do that at all. You just told me to flee from that, Paul, so I think I'm tracking with you. Well, verse 20, no, he says, that's not what I'm saying. Okay, Paul, you're going to have to explain that to me. Um, he he kind of just did. He said, Are food offered to idols anything? Rhetorical. So you're, no. Food offered to idols don't really mean anything. Or is the idol anything? Well, no, because idols aren't real. So they're, no, they don't mean anything. But what he is saying, he says, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. So that's a whole lot worse than just these fake idols. He says, and I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and in the table of demons. So what do you think you're doing? Paul's asking them. When you share in the things offered to idols, you are sharing with demons, whether you realize it or not. Ironside again says they might not realize it, but behind those idols are demon powers controlling the hearts and the minds of people. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Paul says in verse 22. Do you think you're stronger than he is? Paul just warned us about testing God, provoking him, and we learned that we are surely not stronger than he is. So if you think about where we're at in the book, a couple weeks ago, Chet talked about kind of the same thing. What do we do with idols and food and drink? and How do we handle those situations? Paul told us you've got to be wise, you've got to be discerning. And he's trying to teach us how to think about these things. If you're just tracking with this, you kind of get to the point and say, but Paul, (laughs) you said that we're supposed to be all things to all men, and that would probably include eating the food offered to idols. You said that you yourself do all things so that you can bring the gospel to all men. I just don't get how this all fits together. And I think if Paul were sitting here and having this conversation with us, instead of writing it down, he'd just smile and say, exactly. Do you feel the tension? Yeah, I feel the tension. I just want you to tell me what to do. But I think this is just the reality of the Christian life, right? That there is always a tension between two things. And we want to squarely land on one side and say, this is right. This is right. This is what I should do. But rarely ever is there that kind of clarity. I mean, we're not talking about sin, right? Abortion, murder, hate, all those things are wrong and we squarely land in the camp of Jesus and call them wrong. But what job should you take? Where should you go to school? Who should you marry? There's not a clear cut answer from the scriptures there. There's just tension. But for the believer, I think These issues of our conscience and the mysteries of God here are often resolved when we let the tension of the truths of Scripture pull our hearts and our lives into balance. I don't want to preach a whole other sermon, so I'm going to um, move on there. So Paul starts digging at this principle that they have, that they're using to make decisions, because we all do it. We've got some kind of idea or principle that underlies the grid by which we evaluate things and make decisions. So verse 23 is so interesting because Paul starts calling out their faulty reasoning. He says, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. So what, what we think is happening here is that the phrase, All things are lawful, is what um, some of the Christians in Corinth who are of varying maturities as they were discussing their behaviors that were, for lack of a better term, in the gray area, they would use this phrase, but it's lawful. And that was the reason. I'm allowed to do it, so I'm going to do it. For us today, an example may be drinking. Clearly right, clearly wrong. It's just sticky in a lot of places. So once you're morally okay with it, would use the phrase all things are lawful to try and convince the less confident brothers that it was okay when as we'll see it's really just a matter of conscience. Paul takes the whole conversation and he elevates it past their simple, basic, it's okay principle. All things are lawful, you say, and maybe you're right, but not everything is profitable, not everything is helpful. All things are lawful, maybe, but not all things build up. What Paul's saying is that even if the lawfulness of it is unquestionable, there's a higher principle than I'm allowed to do it, so I'm going to do it. And that higher principle should be the one that governs our lives. And it is this that a wise man must discern. And here it is, verse 24, the verse that changes everything for me. It says, so let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. These 13 words set out the most, one of the most basic and foundational principles for followers of Jesus. And the principle really comes straight from Jesus himself. Remember when they asked him which commandment is the greatest? What did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two do the entire law and prophets hang. So Paul's just reiterating Jesus. Let no one seek his own good, but each the good of his neighbor. And it's this idea that I'm praying so desperately gets a hold of my life and the life of our church. i will see in a minute how Paul applies it to the Corinthians, but I just want to sit here for a few minutes because I believe that if we fully understand this and the implications of this principle, the application to our lives becomes incredibly clear though it won't always be so easy. So, honestly, up front, um, most of my thinking on this idea comes from this book by a guy named Matt Perman. It's called what, What's Best Next? How the Gospel Transformed the Way We Get Things Done. Um, Matt worked with John Piper at Desiring God for a long time and is one of the foremost thinkers in productivity and Christian work. <clears throat> and in his book, he makes a compelling argument that true productivity is seeking the good of someone else. True productivity is seeking the good of someone else, as Paul explains here. Fundamentally, this is what the Bible's talking about when it tells us to do good works. I think my generation has missed so much of this, and I'm praying that we can be restored to the biblical idea because we hold on to grace, which is awesome, and say, well, Jesus has forgiven me, but we often forget that God has purpose for us in the world. <clears throat> His work for us to do. We see our salvation as the end goal and not as the beginning of a journey of godliness and seeking to bring the kingdom of God onto the earth which requires consistent action, we've largely missed the boat in seeking the good of our neighbor, that it requires something more than sitting and praying, although those things are great. It requires that we do something by the power and strength and love of God. So I think a correct understanding of our work starts with the gospel, which is most clearly expressed by Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, it is a gift of God not as a result of work, so that you may not boast. So we get that salvation happens as we trust God. Nothing we do makes it happen. Then Paul brings in the tension. He says, for you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God created us to do good, to actively participate in the work of good, and it is all over the Bible, Jesus says so in Matthew 5:16, he says, "Let your light shine before men so that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The assumption is that you're doing good things. Paul says so in Titus 2:14, he says, "We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our Savior, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from the lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works." And again, John 15, 16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. The fruit is the good works. As Matt Perman says, good works are the purpose of our salvation, part of the purpose of our salvation. So God created us to do good good things and his goal is us his goal is for us to do tons of good works. In fact, all the good we can. 1 Corinthians 15.58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And Jesus says it too, John fifteen eighty he says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to me my disciples. John Wesley summed it up like this. He said, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. To be truly productive, to fulfill God's purpose for us in the world, is to do all the good we possibly can. So the question then becomes how? And what does that have to do with this principle that Paul is discussing here, seeking the good of our neighbors? Our responsibility is to take the talents and gifts and resources that God has entrusted to us and leverage them, make them useful for the good of other people. That's the key. We do good by doing good for other people, by seeking their welfare, even at our own expense. In fact, seeking their good because it is at our own expense, just like Jesus did. It's leveraging what we have to be useful to our families, useful to our communities, useful to our country, and useful to the world. It's not just about doing, but being a useful person, making a contribution, and leaving things better than you found them. So you see, good works are not rare and occasional. Think So often we think of good works as like the proverbial old woman crossing the street, which I don't know about you, but I've never seen that or done that. So if that's what it is, I'm out. No, good works are anything, anything that we do in faith. Cutting grass in faith is good work. Driving to the grocery store in faith is good work. Doing your homework in faith is good work. How? Because when you do it in faith, you're seeking to put other people before yourself. Maybe you're cutting the grass so your neighbors don't begrudge your yard and never want to hear about your love for Jesus. Maybe you're driving to the grocery store to feed your kids, to feed your friends. Maybe you're doing your homework so you can get good grades so that you can become a doctor or an accountant or an artist and contribute to society. In all of these things, and in every other thing, we can be be putting other people first and be on the lookout for how to do so. The core idea here is love for someone else. And love is chiefly manifested as generosity. This is the entire principle summed up in one phrase. Be generous. And then let your loving generosity guide your life. Real quickly, six things that Matt Perman says that loving others means and looks like. Maybe it'll be a teaser for you to pick up the book. But he says, Lo- real love, loving others means having real goodwill towards the other person. Wanting the best for them and delighting in giving the best to them. It means putting the other person first, finding out what matters to them and doing it. If you're married, you know, that's kind of the core of your relationship, right? That's how love is built. He says, be eager in meeting the needs of others, not begrudging, not reluctant, We've got to be proactive, not reactive in doing good. We need to take pains to do good for others. We should be willing to make things harder on ourselves to make them easier for other people. Be creative, competent, and excellent in doing good, not lazy or shoddy. Mediocre work is not Christian. Finally, generosity is the way we are productive for eternity. It's how we store up treasure for ourselves in heaven Like we saw Jesus say, moth can't get to it, thieves can't steal it. When we're generous little by little, bit by bit, we send our time, resource, gifts, money, and so much more ahead of us and store up for ourselves eternal rewards. Again, we're not talking about salvation, but we're talking about eternal blessings that God is determined by how we spend the time and things we have here. So I think that's what Paul's hinting at when he lands these 13 words on the church of Corinth. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. I think you'll see that the rest of this passage makes total sense. So we're going to fly. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. Plus, says, sure, eat whatever's in the meat market. It's God's, anyways. It belongs to him. He created it. He saved it. It's fine. This frees you up to go into the market and engage with people, engage with every kind of people, even the ones at Hot Topic. And it gives you the opportunity to seek their good. Think about it if, if you couldn't eat the meat, you could never go and talk to that person. Because you'd just be loitering in their little market shop, never buying anything from them, and they wouldn't like you, and you'd never have the opportunity to tell people about Jesus. So go eat the meat. But for goodness sakes, don't raise a question about where it came from. I mean, can, can you just picture this? You're in the market trying to generously do good for the meat vendor by putting them before yourself, maybe paying them a little more than they're asking for the meat. And there, in the middle of the conversation, you drop the bomb. Um, where did this come from? Did it come from idols because I'm really not supposed to eat that kind of food? (sighs) Paul would say, this isn't about you. And now every chance you had to share the love and grace of Jesus with that person just went out the window with your dumb question. And you can see how this would apply to dozens of situations. Don't say things like, are you really going to drink that? Seriously, you're going to do what? I would never put that tattoo on this holy temple of God. You get the picture. Sometimes, yes, it is so important that we lovingly call out sin in people's lives. But standing on the street corner and screaming it at them is neither loving nor generous. We've got to be wise and always seek the good of our neighbors. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Again, just imagine, thanks for the invite, but are you serving idle food? I won't be able to come if you are. It's not good. But if someone does say to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it. For sake of the one who informs you and for the sake of conscience. And I don't mean your conscience, I mean his, Paul says. If someone brings it up, they probably have something going on in their heart. Paul tells the Corinthians to restrict themselves for the sake of the other person. As Chet mentioned a few weeks ago, in this situation, you wouldn't just reject the food and say, not eating idle food you're going to have an incredible opportunity to talk about why. Talk about the love, grace, and forgiveness of Jesus, and maybe even see those people come to life. Maybe tracking where Paul is headed, but, and you'd say, but wait, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced for it? Well, Paul would explain the principle. Not you, them. Generous to them at your expense with great reward. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, whether you're buying chairs for the university or passing off social security checks or working in a lab, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You see, your generosity and sacrifice has great purpose, the greatest purpose. As you do good and as you seek the good of your neighbor, as you are generous and loving and patient and unconcerned with your own welfare, as you do these things, God is glorified. It is so much less about what you do and so much more about why you do it and how you go about getting it done. It's just as Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men so that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Our good works store up for us eternal rewards because they earn God the very thing that he is most worthy of. Glory. So Paul says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Offense just doesn't make sense. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, Not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. So there we have it. The end of the whole thing is Jesus, the Savior, the example, our motivation, our teacher, our reward. Jesus that we're celebrating this morning by taking the bread and the cup. Just pray for us that we'll take heed and look at Jesus and let the bread and the cup as it sits in our hands examine our hearts and find all the sin that's there and the Holy Spirit would start working it out so that we can do good things. We can seek the good of our neighbor instead of seeking the good of ourselves because that is how God is going to be glorified in our city. So let me pray for us. Father, there is so much to be thankful for this morning. We're grateful for the example of Israel. We are so grateful for your faithfulness. We're grateful for the life and death and resurrection of Jesus that gives us freedom. We're thankful for the table that shines a light on our hearts and opens up its depths so that we, so that we can win this race. Father, we are grateful that we have the opportunity to participate with Jesus and seek the good of our city in every way. So Father, move this morning in our hearts by your spirit to uh, compel us to seek after the good of our neighbors so that you can be glorified, Father. Jesus, receive our worship this morning. We love you so much. It's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.